All right. It's been two years since the last episode, but hopefully it's back now. Once I re-remember how to do this, hopefully I can continue at a more regular pace. It's not once every two years. So where we left off, if you will recall, I'm sure you will, Doug was teaching beekeeping in Nigeria when he suddenly heard a loud bang and him and his whole class dove under the tables for cover. Now, they would have been very well justified to be jumping because the terrorist group Boko Haram had been blowing bombs up throughout the country on a nearly daily basis. The start date for my project had been pushed back due to unrest, and Doug's project was at the same time. And when it finally went through, when both our projects went through, our first day in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria, there was a bombing in the city just north of there. So it was happening all around us. Boko Haram, their main complaint was about Western education, which felt a bit on the nose for us, being as I was a Westerner in Nigeria, performing a form of education. In fact, the day before I was supposed to return to the capital, Abuja, from my second project, a church there in the capital, quote, frequented by Westerners, in quote, was bombed. So I ended up laying low in the countryside for another few days until that blew over. In 2014, Boko Haram was catapulted into the world news when they kidnapped 276 teenage girls from a school. You have probably heard of this. At that point, hashtag Save Our Girls, I think, was trending all around the world. Michelle Obama got into that as well. The story has kind of faded from the news since then. But in case you were wondering, it's now six years later. So you're wondering what happened to those girls. 112 of them remain unaccounted for and presumed to still be being held captive. 13 are confirmed to have died. 163 either escaped or were ransomed. Some large numbers of them were ransomed. And one voluntarily declined to be separated from her now husband. And subsequent to that, in 2015, Boko Haram declared allegiance to the Islamic State to become the Islamic State's province of West Africa. Fortunately, at this point in 2020, both the original Islamic State and the Boko Haram have largely been defeated by security forces, though there are still sporadic attacks in the name of Boko Haram and, of course, still girls that have not been returned to their families. It was getting a bit tangential since I was only in Nigeria in 2012 and 2013, but the point I'm trying to make here is that we were kind of on the rising side of a, a wave of Islamic State-style militants, and that wave had not yet crested when we were there, so it was a thing that was happening. But so anyway, back to Doug in 2012. When the crashing noise outside was not followed by gunfire or sounds of panic, he and the others crept out from under the tables and ventured to the windows to investigate. And what they found out was apparently 
a car had tried to pass a military convoy on the road just out front, and the military convoy, taking exception to this, one of the vehicles ran the car off the road, and it collided with a wall and crashed, and the military convoy kept on going without concerning itself further about this. Doug's project seemed to be in a more unstable area than mine. For example, within a week, I think, of that, Boko Haram overran a prison in his region, near his location, and released all of their prisoners. So there were some exciting things happening near him. In my area, nothing really Boko Haram related happened, so at least there was that. But so let's talk about the beekeeping projects themselves. So I'm going to assume that you are not a beekeeper. So I'm going to try not to boggle you with beekeeping jargon and, you know, not assume you know any of it. However, I'm going to also assume that there will be beekeepers reading this, so I'm going to try not to bore the listener with too much basic beekeeping explanation either. So hopefully I'll, I'll walk this fine line. So the beekeeping projects in Nigeria have all generally been with people who are already beekeeping with top power hives, typically the trainees are subsistence farmers growing yams or cassava on small family plots that look like they're, I don't know, like a quarter acre or something. Like they're very small plots and they're barely enough for one family to subside on. But when you add one beehive to, to such a small crop, the amount of honey that a beehive produces is a significant amount compared to your income from your crops. And so it really helps them a lot. So... A brief explanation of different hive types. The typical beehive in the developed world is what we call a Langstroth hive or a frame hive. And it looks like a stack of kind of cube-shaped boxes that kind of stack on top of each other to make a little bee skyscraper. Typically you see them there three or four boxes tall often. Those are what you'll see if you're driving through an agricultural area. You'll see piles of them neatly stacked at the edge of fields. Each one of those boxes contains 8 to 10 removable frames, which, as the name implies, is four sides like a picture frame, and in the middle the bee builds its honeycomb. And these are easy to remove and take somewhere else for extraction, for harvesting. But the thing is, the frame hive requires a lot of very precision-cut parts to put together the frame and the box and make sure everything fits together really well. There is another type, the top bar hive, which, on the other hand, so this top bar hive, one can make it with a handsaw and just some basic pieces of timber that are laying around. So it's much easier for people without precision machine tools to be able to make on their own. The uh, most common type of top bar hive is the so-called Kenyan top bar hive, also known as the KTB. It consists of a long trough-shaped box containing not four-sided frames, but just the top part of a four-sided frame so-called top bar, and the bees construct a comb that's hanging from that top bar. And so this is removable, but it's not as strong and sturdy as the thing in the frame, so you can't really transport it somewhere else to extract it there. You've got to basically cut it off of that top bar and put it in a bucket and you take your bucket away. But you can't machine extract it as efficiently as you can with the frame hives. And as well, you lose some efficiency because the bees have to remake the wax comb every, every time after you harvest it. And that takes a substantial amount of uh, bee resources. And so it reduces the honey output. 
basically in the developing world a frame hive produces twice as much honey as a top bar hive however the frame hive costs 10 times as much in underdeveloped countries so clearly mathematically you're better off with um, getting 10 top bar hives than the one frame hive you'd be able to afford for the same amount and of course where there are machine shops churning them out that changes the economic dynamic a fair bit and in east africa in kenya tanzania and ethiopia i think to a certain degree in uganda there's more frame hives because there's more i guess carpentry shops with machine tools that are able to make them but not typically in west africa are there very many of these but another interesting thing about the hive types is so the kenyan top bar hive the sides of the box are sloped at a 60 degree angle because European bees become confused by that and can't tell if it's a floor or a wall so they have a philosophical crisis and they don't adhere to that side which is good you don't want them to, to build the comb onto the side because then it'll not come out very well but some African beekeepers probably initially just cutting corners, sort of literally and figuratively, just built a box that had straight sides and found out that the African bees won't adhere to the sidewall anyway. So it's all a waste of effort making a Kenyan top bar hive with these 60 degree angles, which makes the carpentry project slightly more complicated when you can just make a box of flat sides. But because people doing most beekeeping development projects are typically beekeepers from Western countries, who have been taught that top bar hive needs to have these sloped sides. So throughout Africa, you see most of the top bar hives have sloped sides because they were taught to do so by a European or Western beekeeping volunteers. So during the training, I always try to make sure that the beekeepers have a thorough understanding of bee biology and behavior and can use that knowledge for optimum beekeeping. I think that's really important to know exactly why the bees do things so you're not just learning things by rote you're learning why what you do pertains to what the bees want to do and i think that's really important to have that foundation the typical areas of significant potential improvement of the local beekeepers often i find there's a substantial area for improvement in the construction of good hives even though top bar hives are simple there's ways that you need to make them well and if you make it very badly with lots of gaps it's not going to work very well the width of top bars is super critical things like that so on, on our expeditions to the field i'm often looking at, at how the top bar hives are constructed and giving them advice about that as well as uh, new beekeepers everywhere often are, are apprehensive about inspecting the beehive because bees can be intimidating and especially in nigeria where they typically don't have good protective gear and there's a strong cultural aversion to bees too so all this adds up to them being apprehensive about visiting their bees and not doing it as often as they should so during the training programs i emphasize the importance of looking after the bees and you've got to check any hive a minimum of a few times a year uh, to, to see what needs to happen and so i, I get them accustomed to checking their hive through the hands-on visits and telling them and teaching them how to make protective clothing so they'll have that gear to do that another problem they have there is theft or robbing of hives and i don't really have a good solution for this one because 
even if they're not afraid of their bees, plots of land are also close together. If their hive is on their plot of land just outside the village, they're going to have several neighbors within 100 meters of their plot who are going to tell them, you know, get rid of those bees or I will come kill them during the night. So what they end up doing is they put the hives kind of way, way out beyond the edge of the village where they're not bothering anyone, but no one can really keep an eye on them. And then it's apparently very common for other people to come during the night presumably, and kill the hive and steal the honey, which obviously is, is not desirable. So, and that's, that's a, it's a big problem. I think hive theft happens everywhere, but it really seems to be an epidemic there. And I don't really have a lot of good answers for how to do that. During all of my projects, I, I often learn things from the trainees myself. And this first project, I probably learned the most because first project was a lot to learn. And just to illustrate one of the things that really comes to mind is I want to teach them how to render wax. A lot of people were discarding wax and not doing anything with it. Wax is actually typically worth a lot more than honey uh, in value per, per pound or per kilogram, but you typically produce much less of it. I don't know the numbers for top bar hives, but for frame hive beekeeping, you get only about 2% as much wax as you get honey through normal operations. You get a, you'd get a bunch, a lot more uh, from a top bar hive since you're crushing and pressing the whole honeycomb. So even though wax is worth a lot more than honey, you don't get a lot of it and it's not always easy to actually find a buyer. So it doesn't do you any good if it's a high value product that you don't have anyone to sell it to. And so a lot of beekeepers don't bother, they just chuck it out. So I was gonna teach them how to render beeswax Back at home, I had a big purposefully built double boiler to melt the wax as well as a solar wax melter. But here we were going to, you know, try to do it with just what we could cobble together at hand immediately. So I had collected all the materials I could find that had been prepared for people doing beekeeping development projects. And they were all talking about showing people how to make a double boiler with just putting one cooking pot inside another cooking pot. And there are some really complicated schemes involving putting the beeswax in a bag in the boiling water. And I started to teach them this. <laughs> and my trainees were like, ah, oh, no, no, we let us show you what, what we do. We've got a better way to do this. And I'm always eager to encourage them to, to share what they, what they know, what they do. And so they basically just put all the beeswax in one big, big pot, like a cauldron, and filled it with as much water as would go in with the beeswax and heated the whole thing up. So it's all together, the water and the wax. And, um, and that works really well because the wax doesn't actually conduct heat very well. The outsides will burn before the inside melts, but with water, water conducts heat super fast, super well. So it makes it melt very evenly. And so you end up with melted wax and water all, all together. And then we'd pour that through a screen into another pot. And the screen takes out all of the um, old pupa casings and usually some dead bees and other stuff. So that gets pulled out by the screen. And then from the second pot, you just carefully pour slowly from the top uh, into whatever mold you're pouring your wax into. And because the wax will be at the top and the water will be down below, you just watch until you can tell that it's kind of changing consistency and what remains in the bottom will be the water and you've poured all the wax into molds and i found that worked really well and so ever since then that's been the primary method i've been teaching people is 
is that method that the Nigerians basically taught me. So projects usually end with a uh, closing ceremony. You might remember two episodes ago, i.e. two years ago, I, I mentioned that there was a big opening ceremony. So there's a closing ceremony as well. The participants receive printed certificates of participation. Some local officials make speeches. And as well, so they've given me a nice, elegant, like local traditional gown, uh, you know, traditional clothing. So then they have me stand up and they put some neem leaves under my hat. And they, um, so there's about half a dozen traditional chieftains from the area that are around. And they, they come around me and they do a, a ceremony, which confers upon me the title of chieftain. Apparently the chieftaincy title of Soyandaro, which means maker of honey into wealth, and the name, I guess, of Omowale Oyoyami, which I'm told means our son has returned. And this was fun and all, and I got to wear like a um, special ceremonial uh, necklace that apparently means I'm a chief. I thought it was just kind of a fun thing, but then as I traveled subsequently in Nigeria, and remember that was my first project, so I had two more full projects after that. Whenever I was wearing my chieftaincy necklace, sometimes Nigerian military or police will try to kind of give you a hassle just for the sake of it. But whenever they saw my chieftaincy beads and they asked me if I had a title and what was it, I definitely noticed in very real terms they, they would treat me with, with more respect and not hassle me anymore. So it was actually very useful. About a year after the projects, they do a impact report, the organization, Winrock International, to compare how community income compares at that point versus a baseline survey they had done before the project. And I was really amazed when I got the first one and it said that community income had increased by 56%. And I was just like, oh, wow. And then I think the second one, it was 66%. And I was already pretty excited about these projects. They were a fun adventure. I enjoyed them. But, and you know, I assumed it did some good, but you don't know how much. But when I saw those numbers and there were, you know, some quotes from, from participants saying that they can afford to send their kids to school now and buy medication, I was just like, wow, I, I feel like, I, like, I feel like I'm so lucky that I have this opportunity to, uh, to do something for good and definitely cemented in me the desire to do as much of these projects as I could once I read how, how much it helps these people. So to end this whole Nigeria section, obviously I left Nigeria three times. Instead of giving you three whole departures, we'll just tell the story of one departure and we'll parallel the beginning. If you remember when I first arrived, I had been on a sailing ship and then I traveled to Nigeria and met Doug who had just come from Ethiopia and it kind of wowed me. So when I left Nigeria the second time, I actually proceeded immediately from Nigeria to Ethiopia where I did a project there, which will definitely be a subsequent episode here. And then I flew from Ethiopia to New York, where I immediately rejoined another sailing ship, where my then-girlfriend was waiting for me on that ship, not waiting for me. She was working and doing useful things, but she was there. And so I, I ended my second project, kind of returning to the exact same setting I had left at the beginning of my first project. And that is probably the end of my episodes about Nigeria. I haven't quite decided which country I will do next, but hopefully it will be soon.